Today we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Peter with verses 3 through 9. Last week we did 1 through 2. And we talked about the context of the letter. We, we talked about who is written by. It's written by Peter. It's written to a large group, primarily of Gentile converts, new believers, but also Jewish converts, Jewish believers in Asia Minor. And the intention of the, and purpose of the letter is, as Scottish theologian Robert Layton once said, to establish them in believing, to direct them in doing, and to comfort them in suffering. And so it's a letter of encouragement to a group of Christians who are about to face persecution and even death. Another reason this letter, I think, is so powerful, so wonderful, is because Peter is the apostle that many of us probably relate with the most, I think. Simon Peter's life is filled with blunders, with awkward moments, with even fear and doubt. And it should comfort us that this rock man... Cephas, this Peter, on whom Christ will build his church, stumbled and bumbled like we do as well. And so when I read about Peter, I take encouragement from him and from his life. And he writes this letter because he knows what it means to feel like you've botched Christianity when you screwed it up. I'm I'm a bad Christian. (laughs) He knows what that feels like. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson writes, If you had bumped into Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest, you would have great difficulty deciding who had committed the more heinous crime. And isn't that the truth? And so Peter's writing from personal experience. He's saying, this is how the gospel of Jesus Christ delivered me from the pits of despair, from utter hopelessness. Jesus looked at me and he forgave me and he told me he loved me. And so he does not seek to simply console us in the midst of life's trials, but rather he wants to point us beyond ourselves to the gospel in the middle of life's ups and downs. That's why Peter names Jesus five times in just seven verses. Peter says our hope is living, it's imperishable, it's undying, because it depends not upon us, but upon Jesus' blood, resurrection, and second appearance. He mentions hope, love, and faith, which are hallmarks of the Christian faith. That's verses 1 through 3, 1, 3, 1, 5, and 1, 8. And as important as those hallmarks of the Christian faith are, Peter is driving home. Your eyes need to be on Christ. Your eyes need to stay forever on Jesus. Don't navel gaze. Don't don't fix them on yourself. Fix them on Jesus and what he's done. You see, he conquered death. He takes our wrath. He has given us imperishable, inexpressible joy and hope. Now, when we use that word hope, I want to tell you what the Bible doesn't mean here by it. So there are a few things I hope for in life. Okay, if you've known me long enough, you know, one of my hopes in life is to go to Loch Ness and to capture that beautiful creature that lives in the lake, Nessie. I want to capture it. I know it's there. That's a hope. I hope to live long enough to see my children get married. I hope for that. I would like to run a marathon in the next five years. You know, that's a hope. (laughs) Now, I don't know if I can attain those things. I'm not certain of those things, but they're hopes, hopes and dreams. Now, when when the Bible talks about it, it's me saying, I hope my wife will love me 
forever. Now, what makes that different? The difference is I know my wife. I not only know that she loves me, I have assurance that she will continue to love me. And I I know that because I know her character. And I know her integrity and I know her commitment to the covenant that she made with me before God. The love I have for my wife is a living hope to me. It's an active hope. I wake up each day and it's a hope to me. And Peter's saying, you see, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. And he loves me. And he begins with this strong and personal hope. He started last week in God's election, his foreknowledge, his preserving salvific power to keep us. How can we have a living hope that Christ will love us and protect us and secure us and keep us and be forever faithful to us? Peter says, because of his character, because of who he is, because of his integrity, because of Christ's commitment to the covenant. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so the encouragement from me to you today, from Peter, is Christ will hold you fast. Peter says he did it to me, and he'll do it to you. And in God's great mercy, he's given believers three things. He's given us a living hope, an imperishable inheritance, and an eternal salvation. Our hope rests not in some tradition, not in some holy book, some guru. Our hope rests in a living redeemer. Our hope rests in Christ. Our righteousness is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's our hope. That's our anchor. And so with all that in mind, let's read what Peter's encouragement is to us. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 3-9. Read along with me, if you will. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you that you are with us today, that you love us, that you care for us. Open your word to us. Holy Spirit, I want these words to jump off this page like little seeds that will plant in our heart and will take root and sprout and comfort us. Jesus, may it be so in your name. Amen. You'll notice immediately, I love that Peter moves from theology to doxology. And we've talked about this before. If your theology does not move you to worship, then you're not doing proper theology. And so he moves in 1 through 2, verses 1 through 2. Chosen by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of Jesus Christ. May he be blessed. 
our theology leads us into worship. And the more you learn about God, the deeper your love and your worship for Him should grow. Now, Peter, why, why has He chosen us? Why has He sanctified us? Why has He cleansed us? He says it in 1.3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love that. He's merciful. He looked upon us and He had pity. Isn't that glorious? The Bible says he's, he's rich in mercy. He's abounding in steadfast love. And because of that great love, we, are, we have a living hope. Christ's resurrection is hope for us, not just because Christ lives, but because in him the promises that we will live as well. Christ's victory has made all things new, starting with us. It's like reverse creation, working backwards. We are the new creations. We're starting. We're being sanctified. We're being transformed and conformed. And the new birth has already started now for the believer. Now, when Christ rose, he secured forever our salvation. And so the Bible talks about us being hidden with him. We're we're hidden. We're we're protected. We're guarded. We're safe. We're secure. One commentator put it this way. Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming back. Peter, therefore, encourages us to praise God. Praise God. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. He has caused us to be born into a living hope. That salvation, as we talked about last week, goes into eternity past. If you are in Christ, how long has God loved you? I mean, how long have you loved him? He has you beat. Time immemorial love. He set his affection upon you before you were ever born. And due to sin, we could not accomplish this salvation ourselves. We did not work for it. We did not earn it. We did not in any sense deserve it. And that's why grace is called a gift. We receive it by faith. Nicodemus came to Christ and he, he asked the question all of us would ask. Can a man go into the, to his mother's womb a second time and be born again? That's silly. And Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. He's saying salvation's from God. It's a gift. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, an inheritance is a gift based upon a relationship. It's not based upon performance. When the person dies, you get it because you were the aunt or the, you know, the cousin or the daughter, whatever you were. Uh, it's a silly movie, but you think about Aristocats, okay? The Disney movie Aristocats. And in that movie, the madam leaves her millions to the cats. And there's a, a butler who we probably all kind of, as adults, we agree with him. You know, Edgar, you know, he's the hero in the story. He's like, I'm going to kill the cats. And we're like, yeah, those dumb, you know, the dumb cats are getting millions, you know. Well, Edgar can't do it. She loves these cats. And I Googled this and I saw that this is not a far-fetched thing. You know, Oprah has left $30 million to her dogs. And she's not the only one. There are billionaires who have left millions and millions to cats. You know, I... That's nonsense. I mean, I love, my, I love my dog. But it would corrupt her. My Money would corrupt my dog. She'd turn evil. <laughs> you know, she wouldn't spend it the way I'd want her to. 
And so Peter says, those adopted into the family of God, you're given new birth by the Spirit, but there's an inheritance that comes with the adoption papers. And it's not based upon your performance, but rather his relationship to you. He's called you his children. He's adopted you, and he's giving you an inheritance. And honestly, when I think about that, when I think about God's grace, it's as silly to me. It makes as much sense to me as the cats getting the millions. Sinners? Blasphemers, rebels, covenant breakers written into the will of Christ? Why? Upon his death, we receive him and all his benefits. Does that make any sense to you at all? And then some say, well, wait a second, wait a second. No, no, no. See, I cleaned myself up before all that happened. You see, God looked at me. He saw I was really trying hard. I was, I was one of his best Christians. And so then he wrote the will. Is that what the Bible says? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. You see, that's, that blows your mind. And then we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's why it's amazing. Because we were wretches. We were the unlovables. And yet he loved us. You see, every billionaire who's ever lived has a perishable inheritance. But God says, not not you. The things we possess in this world, are they safe? Your clothes, they're wearing out. Your banks will collapse Thieves will come and steal and destroy. But the Bible says if you've kept your treasures in heaven, moth and rust can't touch it. In Scripture, we see that believers will inherit the kingdom of God, the promise, the land, the earth. We inherit salvation. And this inheritance is a settled and sanctioned possession. You can't touch the will. It's been written. It's been done. It's written in permanent ink, promised to you. And nobody and no thing, Paul says, can separate you from the love of God. He's convinced about it. With Paul, we say, amen. Yes, amen, we believe it. And death, therefore, does not have the last word for Christians. Death cannot hold Christ, and because we're hidden in him, because our inheritance is in him, it can't touch us either. You know, Christians are like greased up pigs, you know, and death is trying to, it can't grab us. We're like that little kid on the playground. You know, we're too fast. We're rubbery. We're elastic in Christ. We have to to use these analogies because Satan and death, they can't hold us. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see the symmetry of that promise from God? God keeps the inheritance for us, and then he keeps us for the inheritance. How, how weak is your faith at times? God only knows how many times we've doubted and we've questioned and, and we've said, is this real? Is God real? Does God really love me? Is, it, heaven is too good to be true, right? Will we on our own strength be able to keep the faith? In the words of Pastor John MacArthur, if I could lose my salvation, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You see, our grip is weak, but Christ's grip 
is perfect. The God who guards the inheritance guards those who are to inherit it. He will hold you fast. He will keep you. He will preserve you. All true believers will ultimately and finally persevere. How many in this room, don't raise your hand, how many in this room growing up felt like they needed to be baptized multiple times? You know, the first two or three didn't take. How many growing up in this room came to the altar over and over again? If I just recommit my life to Christ, that will be it. You know, I've prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times. Maybe 101 is the one that Jesus will hear. Beloved, rest. Would you rest in Christ? Peter says, get the strength of the good news. Take that gospel message and then wrap it around yourself like a, like a weighted blanket. And let Christ be your strength. He who began a good work, the Bible says, will be faithful to complete it. And so the question is, do you believe that? Do you trust that you're not some forgotten project by God? You know, you're sitting on the divine workbench and he'll just get around to you sometime or the other. Is that what you are? Are you, just, are you just waiting to be completed? Listen again. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Now hear the word ready to be revealed in the last time. Now if something's ready, if mom says dinner's ready, what does that mean? You have to come add some spices? It means sit down at the table because the food's about to be served. And God says your salvation is complete. It's ready You can't add anything to it. He's not waiting for a couple of your little works to to top it off. You know, a little paint job there. It's ready for you. It's waiting. God's salvation is finished and kept by God himself for you. We are his portion and he is ours. I love, again, it's another silly analogy, but these resonate with me. I love pickled things. And I told my wife the other night, I said, "We're, we're like pickled Christians. And we're in this, you know, we're marinating and we're preserved and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. And, you know, at at the end of the days, we're going to pop that lid and it's going to be glorious. I love it. The Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation did not like this doctrine. They said that the doctrine of assurance is heresy because if you believe this, this would lead to lawlessness. If someone knew that their salvation was secure then you'd have no incentive to obey. You'd have no incentive to live a moral life. That's what they said. And the reformers said, on the contrary, knowing that your salvation is secure and safe and finalized, this lends strength and cheerfulness to obedience. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, so far is it from inclining men to looseness. It's saying believers obey God not out of fear, not out of some sense of slavery or duty. We're not the older son in the field going, you know, Lord, I'm slaving for you. We're the younger son who comes in and enjoys the feast. And we obey because we love Christ. It uses this. It says our assurance can at times be weakened by neglect, by sin, by temptation, And even by a sense of God's withdrawing the light of his countenance. But the Westminster Confession says the important thing to note is that your doubt, your feelings, you know, from day to day, you wake up and you say, I don't feel like a Christian today. 
You know, I, last night I, I sinned a lot. And you've checked your spiritual temperature that day. It's saying that's not a good measure for assurance. You are to make your calling and election sure. But when, when you feel like you don't have assurance of faith, you are to pursue love of Christ, the confession says. You're to p- pursue sincerity of heart and conscience of duty. And so we pursue those things. We trust in Christ, what he's done, not on how we've screwed up from one day to the next. Verse 6 through 7. In this, Peter says, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the salvation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter, in, in dramatic fashion, he moves from ecstasy to agony. He says, we rejoice because we possess all this in Christ, but we do lament because in this world we will have trouble. We will have trials. We will have tribulation. And, and for the people reading this letter, he's saying that's coming. That's coming. But he gives us six different ways to really view the trials. Six different little, in that little passage, there's six things here. First, our hope in Christ points us beyond our trials. It points us forward to, to, in the midst of them to look to Jesus and rejoice. Hebrews 10, 34, I love this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, who is crazy enough to rejoice in the plundering of their property? You see, only those like Abraham which the book of Hebrews talks about, who are looking for a better city. One not built by human hands, but one that is eternal. That's us. We have an inheritance. Secondly, these trials are brief compared to eternity. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we have an eternal perspective on life. Third, these trials have a necessity about them. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so that means the nature of suffering for the believer is different ultimately different. We take that evil thing, that illness, that diagnosis, that death, that loss, and we bring it to Christ. And we say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when that happens, when that happens in the life of a believer, it's glorious to witness. It's absolutely beautiful. Fourth, these trials are varied in the form they take. You know that's true. Church trials family trials, illness trials. That's reality. That's life in a fallen world. And and the thing that is so beautiful is God doesn't close his eyes to our pain. God doesn't close his eyes to the pain. The Bible doesn't say, suck it up. Hey, you know what? Just have more faith. If you would just have more faith and stop being such a whiner. The Bible says God collects our tears in a bottle. 
collects our tears in a bottle. He knows every single hair that falls from our head. Jesus, the God-man, enters into our pain. You see, he, he takes our sufferings. He, he dies on the cross in our place. The wrath we deserved was poured out upon him. Why? So that all those tears could be wiped away one day. These trials come in the form of religious persecution. That's what's going to happen to these Christians who he's writing to. And in that day and age in Rome, you could have said something like, uh, Jesus is who I worship. And the Romans would have said, that's great. Fantastic. Just bow to Caesar and everything will be fine. But if you said Jesus Christ alone is who I worship, that was a problem. And you see, that's really the problem today, isn't it? It's the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. But following God's mean, God means leaving Rome, leaving Babylon, refusing to bow to the gods of this age. And Christian morality will clash with the morals of this world. And when we push back against it, the world will push back as well. And so Peter, later on in his letter, is going to say, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be like, why is this happening? I'm telling you why it's happening. Fifth, they come to prove the metal of our faith. Our trials keep us trusting they burn away your self-confidence. If you, if you have self-righteousness, self-confidence, get, get a disease. Get an illness that comes and you can do nothing about it. You can do nothing about it. And see how much confidence you have then. You will, you will pour out yourself before God. Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. And so Peter says, endure, endure. It will not be easy but endure. Finally, they will result in praise, glory, and honor. And this is just so beautiful. Our testing does not earn us glory, but rather we receive glory by sharing in Christ's sufferings. Peter's talking about a coming salvation, a completion of our trials. And so the text lends itself to talking about God conferring praise upon us. For our faith, our love, our justice, our peace in this age, God will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul says the crown of righteousness waits for those who have loved his appearing. Even in that, what do we do with our crowns? We cast them at his feet. We cast them at the feet of Jesus. It'll be our glory to do it. Christ, all of this was for you, Lord. And when he's revealed like polished gold, we will shine. Oh, can you imagine that day when Christians, we are rising from, oh, we'll shine like the sun and it'll be to his glory and his praise. It'll be glorious. Peter's teaching on suffering is a challenge. It's a challenge to us. It's not easy. When we face trials, I withdraw, I complain, I grumble. And Peter says, don't do that. Do you flee persecution? Well, there may be a time for that, but not always. Do we do everything in our power? Do we chase safety at every opportunity? Many trials will come. They will be various. Peter says, endure. Christ is with you. I understand that can sound like religious jargon. Some will say, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't know how bad this world has beaten me down. And I hear that and I say, you're right. 
You're right. And I'm, and I'm, not, I'm not pretending to know. But I will tell you, God does know. And, and this is where God's word and promise has to speak louder than our past and present troubles. Because we can often deceive ourselves when we try to, we try to find this shallow and vapid joy, this shallow, vapid hope in anything other than what Peter says we should find it in. Christ alone. We can have peace. We can have assurance. We can have comfort only when we hold fast to Christ because he's holding fast to us. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is our only hope in life and death? What is the object and anchor of our faith? Christ alone. Christ alone. When you rejoice in him now, though you have not seen him but love him, you experience a foretaste of just a taste of the joy that will one day be yours when you see him fully. I think about poor Thomas in John 20. Poor Thomas is there. Jesus has just shown up a couple days before. Thomas missed it. I don't know where he was, but he comes back and all the disciples say, Thomas, you'll never believe it. Jesus showed up. He's alive. And Thomas says, you're right. I don't believe it unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand to his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, Jesus shows up. And in his mercy, he looks at Thomas and he says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then Thomas says, My Lord... And my God. You see, Jesus looks past Thomas and he sees us. He envisions the day when all who believe must do so without him present, without him physically there. Christ is with us to be sure. We know him to be sure. But he's pronounced a blessing upon us that us who trust in the testimony of Peter and the apostles and the prophets Oh, how blessed are we who believe and have not seen, who yield to the Spirit's persuasion, who believe in the one we have not seen, and yet we love him. And Peter says that faith, that hope, that love will be so inexpressible. It's inexpressible because it goes beyond human expression. It's divine origin. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to the rest of the world. You believe in something, you came in proof, you don't know this, and some sky god? Yeah, and I love him. And I would die for him because he died for me. That's, that's too wonderful to put in the words. You belong to Jesus. He belongs to you. He gave his life so that you might live. Don't you love him? Don't you want to, to worship and adore this blessed individual? Don't you want to, to know Christ and say, away with the pleasures of this world. Give me Jesus. Turn your eyes from the fool's gold. Look to the face of Jesus. You can have all this world we sing. Give me Jesus. And that is divine. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith is salvation of your souls. That final word, souls, is a bit misleading in our day and age with all of our pseudo-Gnosticism going on. 
And the goal of redemption in the Christian world is not liberation of the soul from the body. You know, like this body is just nasty and wicked. And if we could just get the soul out, then we're okay. That's Gnosticism. That's Platonic thinking. The goal of new creation is body and spirit reunited and made new. I've told this story before. I was in college and I was talking to my cousin. And my cousin says, you know, Heath, I'm scared to death of heaven. And I said, why on earth are you scared of heaven? And he replied, I don't want to sing in a choir for all eternity. <laughs> and, I, and I love to sing. But if heaven is one long choir practice and I apologize to my wife, that's a little scary to me. But see, it's not that. I reject that. The Bible rejects that notion. This idea of turning into angels. We don't turn into angels We don't get our own personal clouds, you know, with our little harps and our halos. We're not doing that. The gospel story is not just that Jesus is alive. The gospel story is that Jesus is alive, real flesh and blood. He chews food. He cooks fish for his disciples. They cling to him. They touch his wounds. And he promises, he says, I'm going to make, build a place for you. A real place. Not an imaginary place, not a cloud. I'm building a place for you. His resurrected body is a picture of our inheritance, of our resurrected bodies. We will enjoy a renewed, sin-free creation with Christ forever shining as our King. And I have very little doubt we will garden, we will play, we will enjoy the animals, all the new create, all the way it was meant to be as Adam and Eve had, had screwed it up. We will enjoy it like children ancient in our youth. That's our living hope. Peter says, strangers and aliens, yes. Scattered in the world, chosen by God. Oh, that's wonderful. Sanctified by the Spirit. You're getting better. You're sick, but you're getting better. Sprinkled by the blood of Christ, cleansed, washed in the eyes of God, loved. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Receive the promises of God Believe. And then, and then if you haven't, repent of your sin today. Cast your cares, your worries, your life, yourself, your depression, all of it, cast it upon Christ and say, Lord, I need your strength because I'm weak. There's a school system in a large city and they had a program for, for children who were in school, who were in hospitals. They were very sick. And they didn't want these kids to miss out on schools if they were in there for a long stay. And so there was a particular teacher who this was her job, to go to the kids in the hospitals and make sure they were on the up and up. And one regular teacher said, we're studying nouns and adverbs, and I'd be grateful if you could go with this little boy and and help him out. So she said, okay. That afternoon she went to the hospital and she walked in, but nobody had mentioned the boy was severely burned and scarred beyond belief. And he was not doing well at all. He was in tremendous amounts of pain. And she was so taken aback by this. She didn't mean to be, but she, she was staggered by the sight of this little boy. And she said, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. Imagine telling that to a boy in pain who could be dying in a hospital bed. And she left and she was so discouraged. She felt she hadn't done anything. I've accomplished nothing that day. The next day she came back and the nurse looked at her and said, what did you do to that boy? And the teacher felt she did something wrong. She said, I'm so sorry. What did I do? You know, I was taking it. No, 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 said the nurse. 
You don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy. But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude's changed. He's fighting. He's responding to the treatment. It's as though he's finally decided to live. And two weeks later, that little boy explained what had given him hope. He said everything changed. They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? What great hope we all have in this room today. Would God send his son to die for people without hope? Would God send his son into a world for people who were just meant to die and never live? And the remarkable thing is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, weren't we? We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. I want to join with Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy of our worship. Let's pray.